James Lambdin brings collectibles to life, particularly through his spoken passion for vintage watches. Collectibles are more than just objects of scarcity, promising an alternative medium for investor returns. They're human stories and history. They're the chance for community connection. We spoke to James's experiences as a salesman in the car industry, his visiting Egypt in the middle of civic uprising, but for me this conversation really got started when we delved into the vintage watch industry and what makes James so passionate about it. And that started at around 38 minutes in, if you'd like to jump to that. Our guest, James Lambden, has a tenacious flame that kept him going as an entrepreneur through the good times and the bad. His story is passionate, vibrant, and authentic, powered by his own unique brand of charm, shaped by a career gauntlet of sales roles. By the end of the episode, I had developed a newfound appreciation for the watch industry, and James is the perfect ambassador for that community. He helped me understand the idea that watches represent something bigger, this is a great interview for people looking to learn about collectibles. And we're very, very excited to be sponsored by the Making Lemonade Fund, Gen Z's fastest growing fundraiser, supporting COVID-19 relief, pediatric cancer, and a bunch of other great causes. Get behind them over at makinglemonadefund.com and sponsor made by our very own Jesse K. So today on the Ben and Tony podcast, I want to welcome James Lambden. So James is kind of a legend in the watch industry, up and coming legend for sure. He's the founder of Analog Shift and director of vintage and pre-owned for watches of Switzerland Group USA. He's a founding partner of the Red Bar Group LLC. He's had an interesting career, not just in watches, but he worked in automotive. He's done a lot of traveling through many interesting world events, uh, worked in outdoor equipment and apparel. It has a lot of life lessons for us and also business lessons. So welcome today, James. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, looking forward to our chat. Oh, yeah. yeah well, uh, we've got a rich, rich background of stuff, so I'm, I can't wait to get into it. But, well, let's, let's start with when you were a bit younger. So tell us, James, about the really first big transition in your life is when you decided to, to leave high school and, in your own words, start college early. Yeah. Um, so I, didn't, uh, I, did, I did two years and seven days of high school. And... Uh, that was not anybody's uh, preferred path, I suppose, most particularly not my parents, but I, uh, I had a limited uh, high school experience, let's put it like that. And uh, yeah, I got kicked out. I got kicked out of high school. I, I made some, some bad decisions when I was uh, younger and, and made some errors in judgment, which I think took a otherwise unblemished uh, academic and, and social record and, and sort of flushed that all away, much, again, much the embarrassment of family and friends, but um, certainly learnable, learnable lessons. And, and instead of returning to high school after my, you know, mandatory uh, suspension uh, period, I, I sort of had it and sort of, um, I was at the, the sort of coming of age part where you start realizing that life's a lot harder than you think it's going to be. And instead of going back and going back to that, hold your hand, slap my wrist kind of thing, I decided to try and take the next leap. So I, I took a year, what would have been my junior year in high school, and I, I just jumped into the workforce. Um, I think I was uh, 16 at the time, and uh, I took a full-time job that fall after, uh, after I got kicked out. And I loved working. I was making money. I was uh, starting to feel like I was contributing to the economy and to the culture of, of being an adult and 
you know, I had a girlfriend and I was buying her stuff and putting right. money into my putting money into my car and bought Christmas presents for my whole family and felt like a, you know, not such a piece of shit. And um, <laughs> but my parents were, you know, truly and my whole family are, are you know, sort of career education or educationally minded. So, you know, dropping out of high school at that point really wasn't an option. Um, so we looked at, uh, you know, going to a different school district. I looked at you know, boarding schools and, and things like that. But I found uh, an early college, in fact, the only accredited early college in the United States that was willing to accept me. And so when the following fall rolled around, when I should have been a senior in high school, I, um, I went to college to a fully accredited, uh, to a fully accredited school and, and started it. Uh, you know, at, I guess I was 17 years old. I started, you know, my freshman year of, high, of college. Did you have a plan at the time? Like, I mean, getting kicked out of college is, sorry, kicked out of high school is, is something that, you know, especially at a young age, 16, I think about when I was 16, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Like, did you have a plan, but, or was it just, okay, let me just get some education, which is a good thing objectively, and then figure out what happens next? Yeah, I definitely had no fucking idea what I was doing. Um, I, <laughs> I had interests for sure. And so I sort of put myself on a path once I got to school uh, to study film, which was sort of my first love. I, I love the movies. I um, fancied myself a, a filmmaker at some point in my, you know, in my teens and early twenties, I did all sorts of student films. And, you know, actually my, the first company I ever founded was a, a videography company. Wow. We were, a fr friend and I were trying to just, you know, do video type uh, recording at concerts and weddings and things like that to our plan was to uh, to fund a more creative ventures. So that was really my my I guess my direction. But beyond having a very loose like, hey, film, uh, no, I no, I had no idea what I was doing, and I was I was reactive at that point in my life for sure. I think most of us are. When you were at college, uh, what happened next? Uh, I know later on you ended up moving to New York, which was a critical moment for you. But before that, like, what were you doing between when you graduated from that college and then moved to New York? Yeah, so my first career uh, really started, at, well, it started the summer before I got kicked out of high school, and that carried me through my college years, as well as for several years after that. Uh, I worked in the outdoor equipment and apparel industry, uh, first for a, a Northeast-based brand called Eastern Mountain Sports. So I was, um, I started as a salesperson when I was, you know, 16 years old, and and sort of climbed the ladder to do uh, retail sales management. I was working on uh, marketing events and so up on a district level. And uh, you know, the, the whole thing, it's the kayaks and the skis and the hiking boots and, and the pocket knives and all That's of that. That was great. As a you know, first, that part of my life, I, I grew up in New England. And so I was really much more of an outdoors guy than I am today, simply because it was my backyard. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the old trope though, is that, you, you know, never, never do what you love because if, if you spend your time helping people get outfitted to go on, you know, long treks through the wilderness or kayaking trips or ice climbing, you don't get to go do it yourself because you're in the store helping them get set up. So, um, you know, it was, it wasn't quite as glamorous as it looked like when I was, uh, you know, a younger guy, but it did learn a lot about, um, about working retail. I learned, you know, first time I'd ever heard point of sale or, you know, um, you know, any, any retail terminology, any sales tactics, you know, I, I learned some of the best um, sales techniques of my entire life from people who worked part-time jobs, you know, at these stores who are much older than I was. And, you know, some of them were firefighters or police, but they needed a job on the weekends, you know, when they weren't on shift. 
to add a little extra money. And, you know, these were interesting people who had a lot of, a lot of interesting wisdom to impart on a young guy. And even though I was their boss in some cases, I was learning from them all the time. It also, I would say, um, started this sort of obsession with knowledge. And, you know, I really, I mean, there was a point in my life I could have told you about every different level of, you know, waterproof, breathable fabric <laughs> from, you know, five different manufacturers. This is all information that's long gone. I used to be able to talk to you about the differences of, of several different types of YKK zippers, you know, things like that. And that sort of knowledge, that interest in learning the little nuances of the product, I think carried with me into my next careers and certainly into what I do today. And then I actually did a year working for Patagonia, which is of course uh, a, an incredibly reputable brand. And I had a really great time working for that company. The company philosophy was amazing. Uh, it was a much slower sort of retail environment. Um, mm-hmm. But I gotta tell you that also helped because I was sort of high energy all the time. And the Patagonia culture was like, chill out a little bit. You know, uh, Yvonne Chouinard's book, Let My People Go Surfing was all about work culture and balancing work and life. and that also had an effect on me and, and would affect me later when I started my own company in you know, recognizing that we're not saving lives with what we do and you don't have to have this ultra strict corporate code, you know, code of conduct. As long as you're respectful and you get the job done, you can, you can like chill out and maybe go home at night and not answer emails. That's, that's interesting. It seems like you lived life with quite an intensity. Like I imagine you being this like obsessive person who understood all the different types of zippers and stuff. Uh, before we, before I, before I ask about the New York stuff, I'd really just love to know, do you, because both Ben and I are pretty interested in, of course, like sales, marketing, partnerships, et cetera. When you said yeah. that you learned some really like interesting sales tactics from like part-time firefighters who are working with you, do you have any examples or stories of that? Oh yeah, there's, I'd say there's, there's two in particular and they're totally different. Um, one came from uh, this police officer in uh, Lebanon, New Hampshire. And this guy, his name was John and he, he would just yell at the customers. Okay. And not in an aggressive, way, not an aggressive way, but the moment they walked in, even if they were, you know, 40 feet away on the other side of the store, he'd be like, yo, hey, welcome to the store. <laughs> I love and, that. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I started doing that um, either when he wasn't around or then when I went on to, you know, work in other stores, I was the loud guy and I was the loud fun guy. And now clearly I work in a slightly more luxurious industry now where yeah. you can't really yell at the customers across a a more quiet, luxurious setting. Yeah. But what it taught me was like, just be a real, just be a real dude, you know, just like connect with people. And his way of doing it was just to be the loud, you know, not obnoxious, but boisterous one that was full of energy and heart and soul. And people would come in and if John wasn't there, like they would go until he came back. <laughs> and then, you know, John was like the jovial guy, you know, he had a very serious job on the police force. And, um, but he taught me to just like, connect with people in whatever way you can and be authentic. On a more technical side, another skill I learned was about sort of adding value to a sale and go back to that waterproof. I had no idea I was going to talk so much about waterproof, breathable (laughs) fabric today. Um, You know, this is, this is in the 1990s and the early 2000s when sort of, you know, soft shell technology was coming out and synthetic down and waterproof, breathable fabric brand name Gore-Tex was still pretty much cutting edge. You know, now we sort of take it for granted and you can get a, you know, a free waterproof breathable parka when you subscribe to your local, uh, you know, uh, community access news channel. But, you know, back then it would make, you know, purchasing a, a North Face mountain light parka or whatever it was, was a pretty big investment for most people. And you had to just 
explain to them what the difference between a, you know, a rubberized parka was and this new material that would allow you to be active and you, your sweat would be wicked away and would allow it would allow it to breathe so you wouldn't get clammy and hot. Anyway, it was you know it, it was like a rite of passage to be able to sell these two, three, four, five hundred dollar jackets. But what I learned was that you were actually doing the customer a disservice to sell them just the jacket. You really needed to sell them the cleaning material because you couldn't clean these with just anything and then a rewaterproofer mm -hmm. and explain to them. So, you know, look, there's this company called Nick Wax. I'm sure they're still around and they had the cleaning and they had the rewaterproofing. And, you know, I learned that you just kept them right at the cash register, right? At bins of them. And so that when someone came up to make that three or $400 jacket purchase, you could in very good faith explain that like, look, you're, you're making this investment. Why don't you protect it? $9 bottle cleaner, $11 bottle of rewaterproof, add 20 bucks to every single sale. And all of a sudden your volume per sale and the unit per sale and all that goes up. And, you know, we were going through cases and cases and cases of this knickwack shit. And, but you felt like you, you, it's 20 bucks or whatever it was, but you really slept better at night knowing that you'd educated the customer about how to use their product and protect their product intelligently. Cause you can't throw one of these in the, in the wash with bleach. It'll destroy it. It'll eat through the membrane and the whole thing. And so that also stuck with me and that you can teach your, your customer about the product or service that you're providing. And you, you don't have to overload them with data. You, you know, you don't have to scare them away. You shouldn't scare them away. But to me, a knowledgeable customer has always been the best customer and the happiest customer. And so I think lots of people are, you know, into the three C's of sales, you know, see the, you know, the three C's of auto sales, we used to call it in the next life, you know, see the car, see the keys, see you later. No, I mean, I, <laughs> I wanted them to understand how the fucking car worked and really getting to know your product, falling in love with it. Yeah. And I think that's infectious. And, you know, when I started selling cars, we'd have the delivery process, which, you know, for most of my salespeople was like a 10 to 15 minute process, sign the papers here we go, you know, talk to the guy it's for the, uh, you know, the, the, the oil undercoating, you know, and the, all that shit. And then you go upstairs and you're like, here's the car. Like, this is a steering wheel. This is how you unlock it. You know, have a nice life. And <laughs> my, my deliveries were like 45 minutes to an hour and a half every single time, every single time. And, you know, my coworkers, my boss would be like, what are you doing? What takes so long to do this? And I'd say, I'll just, I show them all the features in the car. And I did it in a fun way. And that was, you know, resu the result was that I had very high um, marks on my, you know, customer service feedback you know, surveys and, and so on to the point where later my employer asked me to develop a, what they call delivery program and procedure for use in dealerships all around the country. And they modeled it and they actually came and they recorded me doing it. Oh, you know, a whole wow. team of Ger German consultants came in <laughs> and like watched me watch me do a mock delivery of, of a car to a, a major, you know, an imaginary customer. And they took that and, and created a whole delivery program based on it. And I worked with them on that, which was really great. So this is all to say that you can add value and share knowledge and share passion and do it in a way, um, you know, that's, that's authentic. And I think that these early lessons, even just selling raincoats, uh, I took something from that and I squirreled away and, Later in life, I was able to, you know, make it work for my own things. Yeah. Well, I, I wish I could see a video of your, your training to all the, the car salesmen around the country. I don't know if it's on YouTube or if you could send us a copy, but if, if not, I guess we'll have to settle for you telling us uh, the story of how you even got into the automotive industry. I mean, 
it sounded like you were doing pretty you're doing pretty well you were learning a lot when you're at uh the outdoor equipment company you're at patagonia what happened next to then prompt this next big move you made where you end up moving to new york and then getting into automotive yeah well first off i think that video is probably locked in a vault in you know munich somewhere <laughs> okay. and never never to be seen again but it, it would make for uh it should be it would be pretty pretty funny i think but uh, yeah, so my next sort of big transition in life was the decision to move, uh, as I say, out of the woods and into the big city. You know, I grew up in, in Vermont and, and after college in Massachusetts, I went to a small town in Maine. I was working in Portland, Maine, which is, you know, sort of the big city for northern New England. But I never really considered uh, that I was a city guy or could be a city guy. And it really wasn't until I'd been living in Maine for I don't know, four or five years that, you know, a couple of buddies of mine from college said, you know, come down and visit. And so I came down and visited and, uh, you know, we're in our early twenties and, you know, it was uh, drinking and debauchery and having a great time. And at the end of that visit, you know, my, my buddy from college sort of put, put his hand on my shoulder and said, you know, we want you to move here. We want you to get out of the woods, like come, come to the light, you know, get out of, get, get out of that sleepy big world waiting for you. Yeah. 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 And I, I laughed. I laughed in his face. I was like, no fucking way. I can't handle this. This is a, uh, it's a big, dark, scary city. What, what am a little country bumpkin like me going to do here? Um, but credit where credit's due. My, my friend, John William, I mean, he pulled me out of, um, out of the woods uh, with the promise of greatness. And, and I listened to him. And a few months later, I just said, you know, I upended my whole life. And um, I, I, I moved to New York City and I was living in a, in a sublet basement apartment that, you know, was about, I don't know, 67 square feet, um, counting the bed. Uh, and, and I moved here without a job. Um, and that was the other, the, the big thing. And it's something I'm very proud of that I moved here without a job and I kind of made it work. In fact, I not only made it work, but I did exactly what I wanted to do which was uh, after a hiatus in education, again, I decided to go back to school before I moved here uh, to New York. And then uh, right when I got the job or right when I got the offer to move here, excuse me, I was like, well, I just started college again. It's a, it's a bad time. And I went and spoke to my guidance counselor at the college. He's like, well, have you ever heard of online learning, which was a new thing? You know, this dates me a little bit, but I think the University of Phoenix was like it, you know, beyond. And then, but my school uh, said, we just started this online curriculum. You don't actually have to take a break from school. You can do it online. And I was like, all right, let's do it. So I moved to New York in the fall of 2006 or really the end of the summer of 2006 without a job, but I was taking courses online. And I'd been working in outdoor equipment and apparel since I was, you know, 15 or 16 years old. And basically decided that I wanted, it was time to change. Uh, one of my earliest passions from a hobby standpoint has been cars. So I said, I want to go, I want to go work for, um, for BMW, which was a, a company I was very passionate about. And then I discovered that there was actually a position available for Mini Cooper. So I actually worked for BMW North America, uh, sort of doing representation and, you know, ambassador type uh, work for Mini Cooper, which had a uh, basically a factory owned showroom here in Manhattan. So what I was doing was sort of sales focused, but I got paid a salary and I got to do a lot of marketing and, and sort of grassroots events and working with clients very closely. And it was, it was great. And, uh, but I moved here without confirming that job. And as fate would have it, the apartment that my buddies had from college was one Avenue away on the same block 
as a BMW building, which, you know, never, ever happens. Usually you move to New York and you find out the job that you've got is like on the other end of the island or at the other end of, of one of the boroughs. I had a two and a half minute commute. Uh, and so I, my first year in New York, I didn't even bother with a monthly metro, metro card pass. I just walked, you know, to the office every day. Uh, but I saw that job and I'm like, I'm going to do that. And my first day or two in the city, I just hoofed it all the way down the avenue to, uh, you know, to BMW and found the Mini Cooper sales manager and said, hi, I'm James. I'd, I'd like a job. And she said, cool, let's talk. And everything was looking like I was going to get a job right away until they ran my driving record. And I had too many points on my license and their insurance company wouldn't uh, hire me. Uh, they wouldn't allow, they wouldn't cover me. Uh, I had a had possibly still have uh, a heavy right foot. But when I called the insurance company to get a little clarification, because I wanted this job, uh, the, uh, the vendor on the other end of the line took some pity on me, I think. And she's like, you know, if we were to re-examine your driving record in 64 days, we would cover you. And I'm like, got it, wink, nod. So I went back to the, the sales manager and I said, so the insurance people say, if you're willing to wait, all my old, you know, speeding tickets are about to get, you know, archived. And if you're willing to wait until November 1st or whatever it was, they'll cover me. And she's like, sounds good. We're in no immediate rush, but it'd be great to get you in before the holidays. So I'll see you on November 1st. Okay. So my first two months in New York, I had sort of like a potential job promise. But I didn't know for sure. And so I lived here for two months, um, basically eating into my whatever limited savings I had just to survive, taking online classes and exploring the city, which was cool as shit. And then sure enough, I got the call from the insurance company. You're good to go. Got the job and, and started my career um, in the automotive industry. That's fascinating. So, I mean, car sales. Um... There, there is some stigma around it, but also there's a lot of kind of glory and just how amazing people are at sales negotiation. Um, tell us a little bit around, you know, some of the main learnings of negotiation. Well, you know, so I had a, a very different point of entry to, to this industry than most. I, I think I mentioned that the dealership I worked for was a factory owned dealership. Uh, so my salary was, was really, it didn't matter whether the car was sold at sticker price or a discount. Um, but more importantly was the timing of all this, because in the early 2000s, the hottest thing on wheels was the Mini Cooper, and right. especially in, in urban areas like New York City. And, you know, there was sort of a line at the door, so to speak, for these cars, and Mini had built in a pricing model that was retail pricing. That's it. That's absolutely it. And it was actually, what I had to learn was how to sort of diffuse the expectation of negotiation. We didn't do it. The only time a car was discounted is if it was a demo, I had mileage, or, you know, if we really liked you, you might get some $75 floor mats thrown in. <laughs> um, but that was, that was it. Now the industry has changed and, and the, the brand fell on tough times, just like everybody did during the financial apocalypse in, in 2008 and nine. So that began to change, but you know, the, the markup over the Monroney, the sort of, um, you know, the dealer window sticker, if you will, the, uh, for the for the cost was very limited. I mean, the, the profit margin on Mini Coopers was slight. It was, it was minimal because it was a new brand. And, you know, you had to run for 10, 15 years to sort of break even on all the startup costs and all that. 
you know, I'm here to tell you that if you're still looking at a Mini Cooper and you get, you know, $1,500 off the window sticker, doesn't sound like a lot on a thirty or $40,000 car, but it's actually pretty much the best deal you're going to get most of the time. Uh, so what I had to learn was how to not negotiate and to add value to the product. And believe me, I had, I had clients there who just didn't believe me that I wasn't going to discount the car. I mean, I remember one night in particular, these guys just tried to stare me down for like two and a half hours. <laughs> and I just sat there smiling at them. I'm like, this is it, you know? But what I also learned, and this is something I carried forward as well, is that the, the happiest clients are usually the ones that pay the most, you know? And, and if you start in, in the negotiating process, you know, you start to lose trust, I think, on both sides. And are, are, am I getting the best deal? And the salesperson starts wondering if they're giving the, the, the whole thing away. And honestly, the whole negotiating experience I found to be really um, sort of icky, you know? And I think that's where the stigma of, of the, you know, New Jersey car salesman from the 80s, like, you know, really, ha- you know, stands up. And it's slimy. And I'm actually a big advocate for, fixed pricing models in, in any luxury good. Like let, mm-hmm. let's add value. Let's make it worth this. Let's give them an experience that's worth this. And then, you know, Mini Cooper was also enjoying for years um, some of the highest residual values of any car on the marketplace. I mean, resale prices on, on minis for the first five years or so that they were made were astronomical. Mm-hmm. And that contributed to it. Um, and look, other companies have done that in the past, like Saturn did that, you know, for a long time. And by the way, they fell apart as soon as they started discounting cars. You know, you, you sort of have to walk the line a little bit. Um, later on, for a brief time after Mini Cooper, I, I went and I ran an Audi dealership for the pre-owned department and then a Volkswagen store. And that was a different experience. And I, you know, I can't stress how lucky enough I was to get in in a very non-traditional car industry because the rest of it is it's pretty shitty. You know, there's a lot of, of those old tropes really hold up and you have a lot of angry customers and bad feedback and it's, it's sad, you know, but I think I mean, I, a lot of, a lot of those tropes are around that kind of asymmetry of information between customer and seller, right? It's about, okay, I, I don't really know that what you're selling me is the thing you're telling me you're selling me. Um, so that, yeah, that, that, and- that held up in, in a big way. Oh yeah. And then there's, was it Fargo, right? With William H Macy. And he's like, uh, I'm sorry. I mean, I'll go talk to the sales manager, but I really don't think I can do any better. Let me go. Let me go talk. He walks in the sales manager's office. Like, did you see the game last night? <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's all, it's all, it's theater. all game. It's all bullshit. And I was going to say it's theater. Yeah. And I, I think that the internet has helped a lot um, for the consumer side because they've, you know, there's a number of businesses that basically do the math and, and they say, this is what you should pay. And you know, and by the way, Kelly Blue Book is not that because Kelly Blue Book makes up numbers, but they don't, they don't do anything with it. They don't, they don't buy cars. So, oh, Kelly Blue Book says the car should be uh, on a trade-in should be $5,000. Well, why don't you call Kelly and see if they'll buy it for five grand? That's one thing. No, I'm talking about, I'm talking about services that sort of will, will get a whole bunch of dealerships in your area to basically put their price on the line. And it's like, well, if that guy at that dealership doesn't want to work with you, here's four other options. And it's become, I think the internet has actually forced a little bit of that old guard uh, automotive industry bullshit. It's pushed it out. Uh, it still exists, just as in my current industry, there's still some shady you know, trench coat wearing guys hawking, hawking watches on the street corner, um, but it's an evolving industry. And I think, I think for the better. Uh, I came in sort of at the tail end of that and 
I did it with a brand that was really, really wonderful to work with. That was from 2006 to, uh, boy, maybe 2011 or early 12, something like that. I can't quite remember. Um, and it was a great time. I had a lot of fun working for that company. It was hip. It was young. Uh, the products were were just, you know, they were they were the best. They were so much fun. I get another job and I took sort of the same role for the Volkswagen dealership here in New York. And, you know, I won't name the group by, by name, but absolute criminal enterprise. Like, wow, hor- horrible. And I lasted like two or three months. And I just criminal you know, in I, what I, sense? Like, oh, I mean, just the shit that they were pulling, you know, on customers and, and, and hiding. You know, it was it was really it was nasty. And I hated being a part of it. But, you know, I sort of needed a job. And over the next few months, like I stopped sleeping. I was like really upset. And I remember I was uh, I had a phone call with my parents, you know, a few months in and like, how's it going? And I like, I was like on the verge of tears just saying like, I can't, I hate this so much. And uh, I'll never forget, you know, especially from having those family that like never wanted, you know, they always wanted me to stay, stay the course and, you know, work hard and everything. They're just like, man, if you hate it, just fucking quit. And I was like, oh yeah, that's an option. And the next morning I didn't even bother putting a suit on. I wore blue jeans and a t-shirt and I drove into the dealership. And I just walked into the general manager's office and he looks up from his desk. I've been there two or three months, right? And he just looked at me, totally casual attire. And he just said, first thing he says is, already? And I said, yeah. (laughs) And he said, nothing I can do to change your mind. And I said, no. And he said, good choice. I'm not far behind you. Have a a nice life. (laughs) And I just walked out of there. And I got in my car and, you know, it was 9.30 on a Thursday morning in the beautiful, beautiful morning on the Hudson. And I drive up the West Side Highway and a smile and this relief came over me, at least until I realized I was going to have trouble paying rent. Um, You know, so I had to figure something out, which ultimately led to me uh, leaving New York uh, for for a brief time. But yeah, I mean, the car industry is, it's got a lot of lessons and and look, if you're a good car salesman and I know good car salesmen and service writers and, and technicians and parts department guys and people who know their shit, care about their customers, do right by them. The whole industry is not crap, but the, the, the tradition of the industry is really sketchy. And just because it's uh, the dealership is nice and pretty and they've got, they invested some money in, in new furniture and lighting and it looks nice, it's like putting lipstick on a pig. You have to know who these people are behind the scenes. And if they're just trying to bury money and, and play games with the federal government, you know, trust me, it's, it's shady shit. And it's, you really have to trust, know and trust who you do business with. Yeah. Well, let, let's, let's move to that next big part then, because it seems like you had a dramatic exit, you know, as you drive away from the dealership, as you are probably feeling really great, playing your favorite music, like wind blowing in your hair. Uh, but then the reality hit of like, well, what do I do now? Like, what, what, what did you do? Like, what was the next step after you, you finally parked your car? Uh, I went to Egypt in the middle of a, of a civil uprising. Oh, sounds, sounds sensible. <laughs> Tell us about it. Obvious, obvious choice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I was going through some stuff. I, I you know, again, uh, I had a relationship breakdown and um, my grandmother got really sick and I was, uh, I think I was just, I found myself sort of floating and I needed some perspective. So right around this time, a buddy of mine uh, who had been in the army for a while and was 
thus finishing um, college late, had, had studied Arabic in the military, called me up and he's like, hey man, how you doing? I'm fine. Do you want to go to, you want to go to Egypt with me? I want to go somewhere where over Christmas break that I can, you know, like practice my Arabic skills. I said, sure, that sounds good. He goes, so you want to go like over Christmas? I said, yeah. What about your job? I said, I fucking hate my job. I'm about to quit my job. And I did. And he's like, well, okay then. Um, and so we booked the flights and uh, in like late October. And this is right around the time of, of, uh, of Arab Spring. It was, it was that year, which I guess was 11, 2011 or 12. Um, and the day after we booked our flights, the U.S. State Department put a warning out saying, you know, we do not recommend that any American travel to this region, you know, because it was basically a, you know, rioting going on and, and all kinds of things. But, you know, he, he had been in the army and I'd lived in New York for seven years. So I'm like, nothing's going to kill us. You know, we're, we're, we're invincible. Let's do this thing. And on the, I think it was the third of December or something like that, that year, we, um, we hopped on a plane, man. And we just went to Cairo. And, uh, we, you know, we were doing it on the cheap. We were living in a, um, in a, you know, a hostel about three blocks from Tahrir Square, where all of the, all of this was, was sort of coming to a head. And, you know, of course, we spent a couple of weeks there and we, we traveled down the Nile and we saw the pyramids and, and visited other great spots of antiquity and got a lot of culture and met some incredible people. But, you know, really three blocks from where we were sleeping, you know, the, the world was on fire. And, in, in some cases, literally, you know, the, the day we got there, there was uh, there was a tent city of protesters peacefully sort of occupying Tahrir Square. And, you know, six days later, the place was burned to the ground. You know, the place was was like a, a massacre. And I mean, talk about getting some perspective on your problems. You know, you, your job path didn't work out. And, and uh, the person you thought you were going to, you know, shack up with turned out to not be the one and you start feeling bad for yourself, I highly recommend going to a, like a, a moderate war zone because it'll really give you some much needed perspective on what matters in life. And, um, you know, I, I had never seen um, a Molotov cocktail lit and thrown into a group of protesters before, you know, and it was some heavy shit and had some, had some close brushes with um, sort of anti-Western sentiment, but honestly, it was okay. It was all right. There was some confusion, but once we, once we spoke um, to the locals and they spoke to us and we made it clear that we weren't here to, to do anything other than experience what they were going through and, and experience their culture and their country. It was, we were very safe. You know, um, it, the, the confusion only comes sort of at night when you literally run into a group of protesters armed to the teeth with like baseball bats and they got like nails in their you know, like a, like a chair leg and they're going to like mess shit up. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they're like, who are you guys? And then you explain it and, uh, it was okay. You know, also having a pack of the local cigarettes on hand was a uh, really a good thing. Cause hey, there was a language it. barrier. Yeah. And my, my Arabic speaking friends sort of clammed up and, and didn't know what to say. And I'm like, have some Cleopatra cigarettes. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> like, <laughs> you guys are cool. Uh, but, you know, I'm making light of it, but it, it was, look, I think what sort of what Western um, news media reported wasn't the whole story. And, you know, there's also that no, nobody tells you this in Egypt, they have mandatory civil service, just like, you know, Switzerland and, and Israel and many other places. So the protesters and the police were the same people. You know, what was happening is you had a military 
uh, coup basically, and they were hiring foreign troublemakers to come in. And the people throwing the Molotov cocktails weren't Egyptian, they were Syrian. And one of the craziest moments was being in this little cafe, having our, uh, our, our tea and smoking hookah, watching on the television, these riots, which are three blocks away, you can see the smoke rising, hearing it. And then you saw these, you know, tattered and bloody protesters coming into the cafe. And you're like, okay, this is, this is heavy duty. And then a couple minutes later, a bunch of like riot gear police come in and you think that shit's about to go wild and they all sit down at the same table together and, and talk. Mm. And that's not something that the news media would show no, you. You would never see that. So you saw a side of it that no one else did. Um, that's what was, right. What was, it was, what was that like? I can't stress enough. It was eye-opening. It really just showed me that, you know, you can't sort of um, trust a book by its cover. You have to sort of, you have to dig in a little bit in and you have to see what's going on. And that a lot, most of the violence, um, you know, there were rapes that were being reported and all of this. Like, it couldn't possibly, these, these crimes could not have possibly been committed by the, the people. And I met lots of them that were doing these protests. These people were trying to take back you know, freedom and democracy in their country. And what was happening is these troublemakers and mercenaries were coming in and really making a mess of things. And that's where the violence was. And that's where the news was reporting on these things. But unfortunately, you know, the news is colorblind and they couldn't tell the difference between these groups. And uh, it, it really, it was a special experience. I'm glad I got to be there and I got to make some, you know, friends in Egypt and um, as well as this is an amazing place to go if you're into history. So that happened at a really pivotal, a pivotal time in my life. And I got, you know, a chance to just step away, see something real that was problematic and broken and, and all kinds of challenges, put some things in, into perspective in my life. And then, you know, sort of absorbed that over the next several years, I think. It sounds like highly, it was, reco highly yeah. recommend a walkabout. Yeah, huge kind of moment of um, reconfiguration of kind of how you approach things, what you want to do next. Um, so how did you kind of make that decision? What, what, what did happen next? Well, I, um, I had sort of decided because I, I didn't have a job that I was going to try and make a, a go of it back up in Maine where my family was and try and uh, re-ingratiate myself into a slower pace of life and, and culture, which by the way, Maine is a beautiful, beautiful place, and the people are wonderful, and it's the right—it's the right pace of life. Uh, I think for most people, it wasn't for me at that time, and so I—I I sort of spent, you know, after coming back from Egypt, I spent, you know, four and a half, five months uh, up there. The first six or eight weeks of that, I, I tried to make a real go of, you know, finding a job and trying to slow myself back down, and I couldn't. I couldn't, and then, you know, six or eight weeks after trying, I, I just gave up and I said, I have to go back to New York. I know now, like, I, you know, some things went wrong for me and, and the career that I was there is, is, is over. I want to do something else now. I don't know exactly what, but I know that for me, New York is this like, you know, it's this injection of energy. Mm -hmm. A lot of my, my first friends there were leaving. It was like, you know, I'd, I'd gone there thinking I'd, I'd lived there for a year and I'd stayed for seven. And a lot of those people had long since left, um, but New York, you know, the sirens call of, of New York City is it's very real for me. And I think that anybody who might want to try New York should have the opportunity to try it. Now, if everybody came here and stayed, it would suck. But 
um, part of it is the energy and, and new people and energy and ideas. And did I mention energy? You know, like that, that <laughs> I still, after, after 15 years in New York city, when I land the plane and I see that, I see that skyline as I come in or I'm driving across one of the bridges to come back from the airport. Like my heart does beat just a little bit faster every time I, yeah. um, I love this town and, and I had to come back. So I stayed in Maine for a little bit. And then I spent most of my time up there trying to figure out how to come back, ultimately resulting in me moving to New York City for the second time without a job. And, and at that point, you'd done so many different, you'd gone from outdoor equipment, you've gone through automotive, you, you had this incredible crucible of life in Egypt, and then you're back in Maine. Uh, what, what, did you have an idea at that point, like what, what to do next in New York? Because it seems like your background could have led to a lot of different things. Yeah, um, so the, the background on sort of how I got into watches is that I started um, my interest as a collector, um, or at least I should say as an enthusiast, even before I moved to New York for the first time. So it's funny uh, because that, that really, that doesn't surprise me because it seems like all through your career, you've wanted to like, you know, tinker with products. Uh, it's always been, you know, cars, very kind of tangible things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, um, but also, I, I haven't heard you say the word watch until this point. So like, to me, I don't, I don't see like, oh, in high school, I collected watches. I don't see any of those threads as well. So yeah, sorry, I'd love to hear how that came about. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think I'm a polymath. I have a lot of interests and, you know, some of the stuff that I do on the side, I've often thought about, you know, doing professionally. And so, I mean, I collect vintage movie posters, you know, is one thing cool. that I collect. And like, yeah, it's cool. But like, I don't know, I've got only so much wall space. Like, should I be opening a shop to like sell, <laughs> yeah. you know, these Why things not? or like, I, I, I also, I collect Legos and I collect, um, you know, some vintage toys as well. Like I, I love the acquisition and the story and finding them, but like, yeah, I'm a grown ass man. And, and like, do I really need to be displaying my toys? Well, uh, yes or no, it doesn't matter, but like, I'd love to open a vintage toy shop at some point. Like, I don't know. And, and even if I do that, like, I don't know if I'm going to sell my shit because it's mine. <laughs> I'll go find some more. Um, I have all kinds of interests, but watches are a very, very personal one. Um, as a sort of, I would say, analog technolo technology focused guy, I've always liked tangible things. I liked cars. I've liked pocket knives and, and gear and equipment and, and um, vinyl records and, you know, all of old cameras and all that stuff. It's just interesting. Yeah. Um, mechanical things that require a human interaction to do something yes. with. You know what? I, I can totally see the appeal. Um, I, I came across um, some of those old kind of 1960s radios that you can play with the uh, side and they kind of tune in to AM. Yeah. Uh, honestly, yeah. I fell in love with it the other day when I came across it. I mean, how much more interesting is that than pushing a button on a, it, on a device totally. that will eventually die that you eventually have to replace? Um, yeah. I like things that are heirloom quality and can, you know, potentially last forever or a very long time, at, at least beyond our years. So, you know, my grandfather, um, you know, he was sort of a purveyor of fine things. And I think this is a story that is very common in, in watch collectors. You know, you, you sort of begin to associate an object or um, style of clothing or a watch with somebody important to you in your life. And whether that's a parent or a grandparent or an uncle or a mentor or a friend or, you know, whatever, when my grandfather passed away, you know, he sort of bequeathed to us a lot of neat shit. He had art, sculpture and cameras and, and clothes. And 
had the smallest head in the world, but he had a great collection of fedoras that nobody could wear. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, things, things like that. And so it was his watches that I think, you know, that I sort of glommed onto. And I, I, he wasn't around to tell me the great stories about where he got them or how he came to appreciate that thing. He wasn't around anymore, um, which broke my heart. I was very, very close with him. And so I, I sort of started, you know, exploring, you know, his, his life through his, his possessions. Um, and it's a story I've told many times elsewhere, but, you know, the gist of it is I started learning about watches to learn more about my grandfather, uh, who was a man of great taste and experience and wisdom. And ultimately, I fell down the rabbit hole because watches are really, really cool and started to learn about watches beyond what he had and in the interest of like, well, maybe I could have a thing that comes to define my style or my interests, or at least telegraphs that somehow. And, you know, we're talking about a period of months after he died between that and then going down that rabbit hole and then buying my first, you know, vintage yeah. watch for myself. There is something just incredibly like beautiful about exploring someone's life through kind of collectible possessions that they've had. You know, I think each item can really tell a story and you, you, I mean, you see a lot of high, particularly around collectibles, right? They're this kind of, uh, where, where there's trading cards, now it's kind of digital art, whatever it is. Um, and you, there's always kind of a question of what is it that makes this so significant and interesting? And yes, there's the scarcity element, but I think also there is definitely that story element of, you know, it tells the story of a time or a place or a person. Um, so, it's, you know, I love hearing you say that. Yeah, and that's exactly it. That's exactly it, Ben. It's like, you know, after after years of working in New York, I, you know, it's also a great place to be if you're into watches. There's a lot more people here. You know, if I wanted to get together with people in in sleepy southern Maine, you know, we get maybe three or four people to come out for beers every six weeks and like bring their one or two watches. In New awesome. York, the, it was people are everywhere, and I got involved in that as well. And but ultimately, I did know that when I was coming back to New York, that watches were on the table of interest for me professionally. What I had not figured out was, uh, you know, how I was going to do it. And I think I thought I wanted to go work for a brand or ideally an auction house because I've always loved the vintage component as opposed to the contemporary thing. And I really wanted to go work for an auction house and learn from you know professional specialists how to learn about authenticity and and story and condition and all of the things from professionals who make it their lifetime and and nobody you know actually before i'd left new york nobody wanted to talk to me and at the time it was um is is that because it's a like very kind of um uh, insulated industry for sure especially at the time um you know it was one of these things where you know, look i interviewed everywhere. Like if you can think of a brand, I interviewed there. If you can think of an auction house, I interviewed there. Um, and everyone pretty much said the same thing to me, which was, Hey, you know, you're very passionate. You've got some knowledge. You, you, you clearly have a handle on the luxury industry through your car experience. And you know, it looks like you've got a good record in sales and so on. You can't work in watches until you've already worked in watches. So go get a job anywhere else for six months and then give us a call. That's just like, you know, what the fuck is this? You know, I, I, it was, it was a very small club and what ultimately happened skipping ahead a little bit is I moved back to New York. I was trying to get a job in property management or like, you know, any number of different things to sort of pay the bills, but I'd always had this sort of churning idea of doing 
doing watches, at least on the side, because I knew there was some money in it. And, you know, the mediums were changing with social media and, and all of this. It was literally the summer I moved back to New York was like Instagram's first big summer. And, and so I sort of saw this opportunity. I, I had made some friends and colleagues um, who became colleagues in the industry that were doing interesting things in the watch space from micro brands to editorial and accessories like straps. And I thought there was a niche for me in vintage, but I still thought of it as a side project, side hustle, if you will. What happened was I moved to, back to New York and I, I um, sublet a room from a, a guy I'd gotten to know a little bit who also liked watches. We had that in common. And I basically didn't have a job again for like two months. And then I just said one day, I'm going to start a vintage watch company online. Um, and awesome. he and he backed me. He helped he actually threw some money at me. And it's like, that, that's a great idea. And then I started the company and a number of those auction houses and what and brands that had turned me down, you know, in the preceding years started calling me once I put myself on LinkedIn as a watch industry professional and said, you know, a one, one, one auction house offered me a job. This is <laughs> 12 months later. I was trying to get a junior specialist job in New York. I changed my fucking LinkedIn and some headhunter on behalf of this auction house offered me the managing role for their office in Hong Kong, which was at the time their okay. biggest single market. And I said, Jeez. wait, wait. <laughs> all I had, all I had to do was change my LinkedIn to watch industry <laughs> professional. And that's the criteria. And by the way, I spoke to them a few times. They wanted to offer me that job. And I'm like, this bullshit, I'm not going to go work for a company that that's, you know, that's their <laughs> criteria is what your, what your business card says, so to speak. But that was also an interesting lesson. Uh, ultimately I stuck it out with them. Um, with you know becoming an entrepreneur and that's what i've been doing for nearly 10 years so what what is the watch industry actually look like um what is the construction of the watch industry is there you know is it pretty consolidated only a couple of big players up until about 10 years ago it was very consolidated um it is beginning to have new life the word i keep using to describe what's happening in the watch industry today is it's dynamic um yeah. There's sort of uh, three or four big conglomerates that own most of the Swiss brands you've ever heard of. Um, and then there's, you know, sort of the Rolex and Patek Philippe, which are independently owned. Then there's some Japanese brands, a handful of German brands, and that's pretty much it, right? And then in the last 10, 15 years, you've started to see this really in the last five years to be, you know, with the explosive growth. Um, there's a new sort of maker mark uh, market for what we call micro brands, which could be just one person or a small group of people who are, yeah. you know, subcontracting larger manufacturers to make their designs with their brand. And they're sort of, you know, they're, they're off the shelf components organized in a certain way. Some of them are really good and some of them are not so good. And they do, you know, digital marketing, marketing, and they create a brand story and they have a cool website or whatever, but um, there's, there's more of those than I can count now, but what's happened is the sort of overlapping nature of, of, of the watch industry, the fashion industry, the car communities, the specialist yeah. groups, the, the, um, the editorial side and the e-commerce side, and then the accessory side. And it's all beginning to just merge. And it's a very, and then, and then also the vintage watch market has blown up and the auction headlines are grabbing national news when Paul Newman's 
Rolex Daytona sells for $17.8 million, you know, all of a sudden watches are starting to do things. And because the Swiss as a culture are fairly reactive, you know, most of these brands are like, oh, maybe we should do social media um, or what have you. But they have a culture and a tradition of being sort of closed off, red velvet curtain. They have their Swiss elves in the back making incredible things. But they don't really tell, they didn't get good at telling their story until, you know, really pretty recently. Right. And then, and then they start to open the curtain. They're like, wait, you guys want to see back here? And that actually adds value to our story. And you like us more when you see the Swiss elves doing these things. Oh, come on in. But it was, um, it's a, that's a new phenomenon. And, you know, there weren't jobs in watches in the 90s that looked anything like what it is today. It was very traditional brick and mortar retail, authorized dealer partnerships. And then of course, a very healthy gray and black market. So what was it that you guys were address- that decided to address that the market at the time wasn't addressing? Yeah, authenticity and transparency for vintage. Um, to be clear, I wasn't like the only trustworthy vintage watch dealer in the world, but most of these guys were sort of reputationally based usually a single person or maybe a partnership. And it was usually some guy's name. And there's, and that's great because that person's name, you know, some of these guys are my friends and colleagues and I trust them implicitly and I learn from them, but there's no sustainability to building a brand behind that. When that guy decides to quit, when Joe Smith, vintage watch expert decides to right. quit, you're not selling Joe Smith, vintage watch expert.com to anybody. Um, and it wasn't my plan to sell, to be clear, and we'll talk about that a little bit, but I did want to create something that was sustainable beyond just me. And so that if I did want to step away or have other people running it, I could. And so what I did was create, you know, my goal was to create a reputable global vintage watch brand and operate in the e-commerce space. And that, you know, I, I didn't feel like I was doing anything cutting edge, to be clear. I thought I was just doing something smart uh, or at least informed. Turns out I, I was like probably one of the, if not the, then one of the first handful of vintage watch dealers in the world to so operate exciting. a website wow. that you could click and add to cart. This is, um, it, it, it's, you're, you're doing resales of watches, right? Yeah, I don't make anything. I mean, yeah. now, now I do. But yeah. back then I was, you know, treasure hunting these things, having them serviced, restored as, as needed, um, being able to provide a, a warranty and then a guarantee of authenticity, doing a lot of research. I, this is all self-taught, um, you know, with the help of mentors and, and lots of people along the way, to be clear. Um, but, you know, we weren't making our own branded watches. We were finding vintage treasures that were great and telling their stories. So treasure hunting and storytelling and offering it online. And, you know, I got lucky and I caught Instagram right as it was going up and an analog shift, you know, sort of got caught into that wave. And we were one of the first big watch presences on Instagram. And if you do the, if you look at the analytics from Instagram at large, like you have travel, and like food and then like cat videos and then watches are like it's like it's one of the top 10 sort of sub communities on instagram the watch content on instagram is massive and that became sort of our digital shop window and then we had our website where you could click it and buy and it wasn't until later that we decided to open offices and boutique in new york for people to come to us and we actually sort of went offline a little bit more but uh, the online part of our vintage analog minded business is, you know, it's a, it's an irony that's not lost on me, but it's a blend of both old tech and, and new 
you know, opportunity to, to reach global audiences. So dynamic stuff is happening all the time. And we're trying to evolve and, and, and find new ways to serve those, those communities. I love the treasure hunting part. I don't, I don't really care about selling stuff. I'm, I'm good at it. And I have, you know, fortunately, I'm good enough at it to, you know, pay the salaries of my staff and myself and, and so on. But like, I love finding the thing and telling the story. And then I turned out, it turned out I love making stuff. So I've been able to work with great craftsmen and, you know, large and small to do collaborations for, you know, custom straps and packaging and um, storage boxes and some stuff that's even bigger than that, that I'm working on right now. But there's actually some beauty in making a widget and uh, making 10,000 widgets and selling them and then ordering more and selling 10,000 more. There's a beauty to that, that somebody who's spent his last 10 years finding that one thing, going to a lot of work to find it, fixing it, telling its story, selling it, and then it's fucking gone. And then you find the next one. And I love that, but being yeah. able to balance that with some sustainable churn in other types of, of and it could be content as well, you know, creating content that's evergreen. Um, it's a balancing act, right? And, you know, the inevitable question I get asked is like, what happens when you run out of vintage watches or they get too expensive because everybody wants them? And the answer is every day that goes by, something's getting a little bit older. So there's always new vintage, so to speak. I love it. I mean, how, 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 did, how did you, I, I follow a ton of watch Instagram pages, by the way, so I'm completely unsurprised that they're so high on the uh, Instagram collectibles. Um, but how did you think about kind of curating your collection of vintage watches? What are some of the things that you think are really important when considering buying a watch? Yeah, I mean, it's the same stuff, you know, that I think when you, you should you know, look at when you, you know, buy any expensive item is, you know, know who you, you know, know who you're buying it from. So I wanted to make sure that analog shift was about presenting the personalities behind the brand just as much as the brand itself. And it's not just been just me. Uh, I've had a great team of people who I've worked with over the years who've come and gone in some cases and moved on to bigger, exciting things. But, you know, I always wanted to make sure that they had a voice and that they could connect with, with people as well. So that's part of it. Um, our photography has always been really macro focused. So we actually highlight the flaws in our watches using magnification that in many cases you can't see with the naked eye, but we really, we would rather the box be open and they go, wow, this is much nicer looking than your photos made it look than the other way around, which is a lot of the online retailers don't know how to photograph these, these things properly. So edges get blurred and, and, chips get sort of lost in the fuzz and you know then you get it and you look at it closely and you're like man this is not not nearly as nice as i thought it was because the pictures weren't as good yeah but um, so to me yeah there's something about putting that imperfection front and center that, that actually brings it to life i think so and then the story and and being emotive about it you know i mean look a lot of, there's a lot of reasons that people can get into watches whether it's the aesthetics of the watch whether it's the mechanics of the watch there's you have fashion people looking at aesthetics. You've got mechanical nerds looking at the movements, you know, gears and springs inside <laughs> that make these things tick, you know, so to speak. Um, you've got an investment angle today. I mean, these are a rapidly appreciating um, non-traditional physical asset, come up, you know, class. Um, and you've got this sort of X factor of emotion and story. And that's what I, that's what I clung to. Um, and the watches that we were picking, some of them were, you know, $10,000 at the time. And some of them were $500. And so it wasn't really about being snobs or being luxury with a capital L. 
yes, it's luxurious to be able to buy these things and spend your time thinking about them even, but it's luxury with a lowercase L. And, you know, we've always sort of fancied ourselves a, a beer and, and blue jeans brand uh, and not a champagne and, and tuxedo brand. I, I and I like think you, it's, I, th I think, I think that's connected with the, the community and people know who we are. You know, we have, we are, we do this for fun. You must've had so many lessons throughout this process because it, it was your first real like entrepreneurial, like own your own company, shoot for the stars, have a team, hire, do something from scratch, which is, it takes a lot of bravery. And I'm sure there were some good times, also some bad times, it's not easy. What are some lessons that probably stick out as some of the biggest things you've learned uh, over the past few years since starting Analog Shift? Uh, yeah, I mean, I wanna make this very clear. I, I, I think that there's a, a tendency to try and idolize entrepreneurs who've done incredible things and I've caught myself doing it as well. But, you know, look, I, you know, as I fell out that tree, I, I hit every branch on the way to the ground. You know, like I made lots of mistakes. And in, in my case, they weren't the mistakes that you think you're gonna make. They're, they're things that sneak up on you about not, you know, maybe putting your trust in the wrong people and having somebody blow up your spot before you're able to, you know, make a big announcement. Or, um, you know, em employment is very, very challenging if you're a small company, you know, you don't have an HR department. And, you know, you, you, believe me, I was very surprised to find out that I had, you know, some part-time help that was stealing from me, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, losing friendships over, over business deals is it's a very hurtful thing, but these are the lessons that business school cannot possibly provide you. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the great sadnesses as I had all these successes, was, you know, being asked to come and speak at my school about being an entrepreneur. And like, you want to get up there and you want to say, you know, shoot for the moon, follow your dreams, you can do anything. And then you, you know, you end up going up there and you're just like, uh, you need 10 times the employment liability insurance that you think you need. Don't trust anyone. Uh, <laughs> did I mention, and don't trust anyone, you know, and it's, it's a, it's a hurtful thing. And it, it's, um, it's a gut check. Um, so these, these, you know, success stories, you know, they're very rarely overnight. Usually the people who are the most successful have made lots of mistakes or had failed companies along the way. Um, I've been very fortunate that analog shifts survived, um, several tempests and I, I credit, um, not my emotional fortitude because there were times where I was looking, you know, up at the ceiling from the floor going, I don't know if I can do this. It was my client base, it was my, my friends, the people who had helped me build this company. Um, you know, anytime I was on the brink, it was always my clients and colleagues that brought me back, you know, to the light. But yeah, it's very hard to be an entrepreneur and don't let anybody fucking tell you that they had it figured out because they're lying to you. Um, I went to business school. I got a, a bachelor degree in organizational leadership. I don't, I didn't know anything about you know how to do a profit and loss as it pertained to my business. Nobody really taught me how to do that shit. Uh, I learned a great lesson about RFID tracking, like on luggage, you know, when I got my degree. But like that doesn't do shit for me. Um, it's about communication. It's about understanding your industry. It's about presenting yourself as an authority, but being able to back it up even before you've sort of earned the title. Like you need to put yourself out there. Uh, it's about making mistakes on who you associate with, collaborate with, uh, employ. Uh, and unfortunately, those challenges and those, those experiences can be really emotionally draining, particularly if you do something that you love, because, yeah, you're supposed to, you know, not have a mix of business and personal life. Let me tell you something. It's impossible. 
And I don't care what the self-help gurus say, you cannot do something you love professionally and separate it from your life. You cannot do it and you shouldn't try. You should, you should strive for balance and you should prepare yourself sort of emotionally for, for some of the you know, disappointments that you're going to have. But if you, you know, I, I want to do things that I love. And unfortunately, the dark side of that is, you know, it's going to hurt you personally as well as professionally when they go, when they go wrong, not if they go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess to kind of like to bring that to life a little bit. I mean, you know, I think that there is a, there is a, at least an emerging conversation around the darker side of entrepreneurship. Um, I think, I think it's easy. It's easy to kind of listen to that and be like, okay, I kind of believe that I'm still going to do it. But what do actually some of those branches that you bump into actually look like? I mean, it, I, they, I think the disappointments um, just take many forms. You know, I, I think a, a bulk of, of, you know, what I experience is that like the shared passion that you find in kindred spirit, you know, with other entrepreneurs, um, you know, even if I consider myself a pretty good person who would never take from someone physically or philosophically, that doesn't mean that they won't. You know, and I've 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 introduced business people that I w had great relationships with and tried to make you know one plus one plus one equal ten, and then they saw a way to cut me out of a deal, right? And went and did it, or you know, I I uh, worked on a project and I I hire a consultant, right? And I share a lot of important company information with said consultant, and then that consultant gets a a job, a full-time job with, um, I wouldn't say a competitor, but a colleague. And then suddenly a lot of the things that I had been working on with him appear over there. Mm. And, or, you know, and then of course there's a lot of employment challenges as well. I mean, you, you, um, you employ people. Uh, and if you're, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you don't have, you know, and especially in a startup environment, you don't have all the resources to, you know, contribute, but you try to be a good boss. You try to pay people well, you try to reward them for their, um, their, their work and you, and you trust them and people will lie to you and they will steal from you and they will do lots of shit to you when all you've done is tried to pour love on them for helping you build your dream, you know, and I, I, I work my ass off and I think a lot of entrepreneurs do, but, you know, sometimes you get so caught up in what you're doing that you then look over, you know, what your employee that you're paying very well is and, and they're fucking off, you know, and you realize they've been fucking off for a long time. And then they take some introduction that you made for them and they, they go do it for them and they pay right. them more or whatever. And, you know, it, it's, it's really a challenge at times to like, just not want to trust anyone. You know, I, I try to remain optimistic and I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. And fortunately for every person who's, who's done me wrong, there's five who haven't, but when it, when it comes internal like that, it's something very hard to, to prepare for. And as an entrepreneur in a startup environment, it's, it's nothing you can really um, train for or learn about. You just have to hear people talk about it, I think. And um, there's, there is a dark side to entrepreneurship and it, it can be very emotionally draining. And just to recap, like if you do something that you love, it can hurt you just as much as it can make you, it can lift you. Wow. Well, I, and there, a, there's no separate, there's no separating it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I that's think, such, a, such a necessary lesson. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of what I've created and this is not, this is not to say that this has been awful. It's been great, but it hasn't been easy. Yeah. Well, that, I was thinking like moving to maybe present day and most recently when your company got acquired uh, amidst all the challenges, of course, uh, and the accomplishments that you had, how did it lead to your company getting acquired? And can you tell us a story about how that happened? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I've had um, some collaborations with other retailers before, usually in a single brick and mortar environment. They said, hey, you guys are an authority and you've got a brand name. Can we put a case of of your watches in our store? We'll buy them. You come train us and we'll sell them. And when we sell them, we'll buy some more. And it, and so I had retailers in other cities doing this and it, it was it was working. Um, and then we got a call about a very large European uh, based, a UK based company that was you know moving into New York and opening a big flagship. And um, a friend of a friend of mine who was doing some PR marketing work for them said, "Oh, you want to do vintage? You got to talk to James." And so several years ago, I had a conversation about putting our watches into the watches of Switzerland flagship store that they were opening in Soho that that year. And uh, we did it, and they bought a bunch of watches, and we provided them with resources and trained their staff and uh, put them on our website, saying these watches are available at this store, and you know, we became one of the best-selling brands in the store. And remember, we don't make anything. We find the yeah, thing. Right. So uh, our, when I say the best-selling brands, it's all the brands that we were selling under our brand. And so very early on, we started having conversations about doing bigger things. Um, I think it spoke to the fact that there was a, a brick-and-mortar, more traditional retailer environment that, or, or clientele that was actually hungry to learn about vintage, you know, and maybe weren't in the community and, you know, look, we weren't selling watches to the same eight guys anymore. We, we were talking to global, um, a global community. We were talking to more fashion driven people, more uh, investment driven people, people who couldn't get the new one because the new watches are so in demand that you just can't get one. You have to wait for you know months or years in some cases to get the one, but there's vintage or pre-owned ones available. And why don't you buy them from somebody reputable in our store? Yeah. Uh, so the conversations started pretty early, to be honest with you. Um, and, you know, we, we're, you know, two organizations moving and shaking and then and then COVID hit. And uh, I think it gave everyone a little bit more time. And so they reached back out to us and they said, how are you guys doing? Do you still want to talk? And it was it was actually great timing for us. Um, you know, we we had challenges with COVID. I, I furloughed myself immediately. I kept my staff on as long as I could. Um, we didn't get the payroll protection, which was, that's a whole other thing. Don't give me a soapbox on that in the way the banks, you know, treated some small businesses, but you know, it, it was a very unsure time and watches of Switzerland was right there for us. And they came right back around to it. And they said, you know, do you, do you want to keep doing this together? We might be able to help you. And sure. The, the sort of arrangement changed due to the nature of the time of, of, of crisis and pandemic, but Ultimately, it's exactly where we wanted to land, and it was exactly the type of company we wanted to work with. So it was it was an easy answer, yes. And what's very cool about it is that they are not your traditional watch retailer. They have an eye towards all things horological, and they weren't just stuck on the same few brands doing business the same few ways. They really are thinking about it in a much more dynamic way and finding new ways to talk to the consumer. So analog shift. In their in their minds was exactly the type of company that they wanted to roll in yeah. so analog shift was acquired and it exists now as the vintage and pre-owned department for the watches of switzerland group north america and you know eventually 
once we're up and running, we'll move back across the pond to the UK as well. Uh, I stayed in charge. I was able to keep some of my team intact. We're going to grow uh, even more and we'll have uh, opening more doors within their network over the coming months. And we're doing all kinds of special projects I can't talk about uh, yet. But I, I do hear about people um, who sell their companies and it ends up being a really negative thing. You know, maybe yeah. there's some money and maybe it's a big, you know, um, you know, a sea change for, for their personal life or what have you. Um, this has been great for me, though. I mean, like, it's been a wonderfully positive experience. Um, you know, my bosses in the U.S. and in the U.K., like, they trust me to do things. And, and um, they're giving me the resources to do a lot of the things I've always wanted to do. And they're giving me enough to do it all at once. So, I mean, I have got my, I'm up to my ears in, in rebranding and, and visual merchandising and you know, web development and accessory products and collaborations and limited editions. And I get to do all of that now because I've got the resources and the trust to do these things. And I, I mean, I couldn't be happier. And the best part is they, they really allow us to keep doing business our way that, that beer and blue jeans way, you know, we're not falling into some sort of corporate soup, ultra corporate environment that you have to like, you know, wear a suit to, to every zoom meeting. It's just, it's not, yeah. there's no point in that, you know, and I think they're very forward thinking and um, plus they all have great accents because they're all from the UK and it's, it's feels and so those, worldly. Yep. Well, I hope <laughs> yeah. to see you in the UK soon once you've got that expansion happening. And while, while um, Ben is a Brit based in San Francisco, I'm going to be back in London soon. So I hope to see you there. Uh, so usually, by the way, James, we, we close with two traditional questions. Uh, thanks for okay. everything. I'm really looking forward to this. But right before actually going to those two questions, do you want to talk really quickly about Red Bar? I do. I do. So uh, I wear a few hats in, in the watch industry. It's, it's all watches all the time for me now. But uh, in addition to running Analog Shift um, for Watches Switzerland now and doing so, a little bit of journal, uh, journalism work as well, uh, I'm, a, I'm a founding partner of the Red Bar Group, which is the largest watch collecting community uh, around the world. There's almost 70 chapters now, I think, all around wow. the world. And it's a bunch of crazy watch-obsessed individuals in, in their local regions that form groups uh, known as Red Bar. It, it started here in New York, uh, founded by a couple of dear friends of mine. And it was a fairly loose social club, to be clear. And then, and then Instagram happened, and we started taking photos of, of, of the get-togethers and all the watches and the boozy good nights and the whole thing. And after a few years of this, uh, we got together and we said, let's do something with this. Let's figure something out. And the one thing we all agreed on as founding partners was that we wanted to do something with a charitable mission. So Red Bar Group uh, does all kinds of charitable initiatives around the world, from silent auctions and fundraisers to getting donations from brands that we work with to promote, collaborate with their products and their, um, their launches and so on. And we make charitable donations to you know, important organizations all around the world. So the watch industry, again, is it's a luxurious thing. We're very fortunate to have the means to buy these things and the time to spend on learning about them and, and communities of people that are similar. Um, Red Bar is about, is about having some fun and giving a lot back. And we've made some wonderful donations to date. We continue to do uh, work with a charitable mission. And it's something that if, if any of the listeners are interested in finding out if there's a, a group of wackos in their local area that want to get together and play watches and you know maybe have too much to drink, um, you know, reach out to the Red Bar uh, Red Bar group uh, through the email on the website or or on their Instagram, and we can connect you with with people in your area. Or if you're somewhere new, you could be the new chapter head. And really, it's just about having fun with watches and you know doing no harm and giving something back. 
That's awesome. Well, look no further. You need not even look to our audience. I think you've got two, two definite advocates right here. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's a good times, you know, like it's just people, some people take shit too seriously, not, not red bar, you know, it's, it's for the good of, uh, it's for good of fun and, and for the good of yeah. uh, a number of important causes. Yeah. Well, well, these next final two questions we're going to ask you, one is not super serious and one is slightly more serious, but let me start with the one that's okay. not, it depends on how you take it. Maybe it's super serious. What is your favorite okay. romantic comedy? Love Actually. Yes. That's great choice. Great, great choice. So mate. decisive. Great man, choice, you're mate. Yeah. Ah. Never, you're the first person who hasn't leaned back and been like, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> it sounds like you should move to uh, London yeah. too, by the way. I feel like you'd really fit in in London, you know, like they, they would like you over there. So keep that in mind, you know. I can confirm. I do go, I do go over as much as I can for sure. <laughs> uh, so the second question is you're sitting aside from the, no, you're sitting across the table from your 18 year old self. What advice do you give yourself? So 18 would be after I screwed up and got kicked out of high school. Uh, so let's see. The advice would be don't take life too seriously. You'll never get out alive. Yes. Work your ass off. <laughs> um, Great. The, the people that you think are going to be in your life forever um, are probably not going to be the people that are in your life forever. It's going to be new people. So be open to that and don't be, you know, so, so stuck in the past that you can't look, you know, forward to the future. That's a whole bunch of shit I would say. And then I'd probably buy him a scotch. Buy that man a scotch. Very cool. Awesome. Well, <laughs> James. James. It's been Fantastic. wonderful. Thank you so much for, for taking yeah. the time. Yeah. We've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Uh, it, was a, it was a treat to get the call. And I, I, hope, uh, I hope, you know, that you guys have a lot of success with, with this project. I think it's a, it's a fun thing to focus on. And hopefully you get some more uh, guests that are much more interesting than I am. But hey, uh, appreciate, hey. I, I appreciate the involvement. <laughs> yeah.